Hello, everyone, and welcome into another edition of Coach Time here on the Believe Network, a special edition. I'm your host, John Lyons, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And you may have seen him in MLB The Show 23 in their very successful Negro Leagues mode. Mr. Kendrick, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. John, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And Mr. Kendrick, when I first saw you, I'll be honest with you here. I had not really heard much about you or the museum until I played MLB The Show 23. <laughs> I had heard of the Negro Leagues. I knew of several of their stars. But then when I played this game mode on MLB The Show, I started to learn more and more about the Negro Leagues and so many fascinating stories from the start of the league in, in 1920 with Rube Foster all the way through full integration of the major leagues. So could you give, for those that maybe aren't as familiar, could you give a summary of why the Negro Leagues came about and how they came about, you know, originally with Rube Foster and even before that? Well, it was certainly not a phenomena for black folks playing baseball. We've been playing baseball for quite some time. Matter of fact, John, there is early evidence of us playing even as enslaved people. But in terms of a league structure, you really didn't get that until 1920. There had been some other failed attempts to put together an organized league for black and brown players. Obviously, they had been shunned from the major leagues by the color of their skin. So you had a lot of barnstorming going on prior to the formation of the Negro Leagues. And you still had a lot of barnstorming even after the formation of the Negro Leagues because barnstorming was so big. And so you had these independent black baseball team owners and the brilliance of, and you mentioned them in the lead in, Andrew Root Foster who somehow convinced seven other independent black baseball team owners that they needed to come together. They met here in Kansas City, right around the corner from where the museum operates, which is really when people sometimes question out loud why a Negro Leagues baseball museum is in Kansas City. It is because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. So they organized that meeting at the Paseo YMCA again, right around the corner from where the museum currently operates. Out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. And then the Negro Leagues would go on to operate remarkably for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. And as you can well imagine, that surprises so many of the people who come to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, because most of them, particularly those who are baseball fans, they do understand that Jackie Robinson would break Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947. 13 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier, the Negro Leagues finally ceased operations. Why? Because it took Major League Baseball 12 years before every Major League team had at least one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox would become the last team to integrate in 1959, when they signed a guy by the name of Elijah Pumpsy Green. That would complete the integration cycle. And by 1960, the Negro Leagues closed its doors because, as you can well imagine, the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into the minor league system, and there was no replenishing system. But the Negro Leagues were really established through the genius of Andrew Root Foster, who was the mastermind behind this. And I say, and I mean it sincerely, I think the greatest baseball mind 
this sport has ever seen, and no one really knows who the heck he is, even though he is rightfully enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I want to follow up on that because you had a quote in MLB The Show that Rube Foster was, in your opinion, the most influential baseball mind in the history of the game, yeah. black or white. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that he created the Negro Leagues, which eventually was a path to integration, although, of course, it took many years to get there. When you view him as the most influential person in Major League Baseball, is that solely because of the Negro Leagues or is there more to it that you view his influence still being felt today? Is more to it. That is one major component of what was a groundbreaking kind of career. John Root Foster is that rare baseball figure who would have gone in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a player, as a manager, and as an executive. And I don't know too many that check all three boxes in terms of Hall of Fame worthiness. I'm sure there might be somebody else out there but it doesn't immediately come to mind. And that is so indicative of Rube Foster's career in its entirety. We lose sight that he was an outstanding baseball player, had been a great pitcher in the early era of black baseball. As a matter of fact, he earned his nickname Rube as a youngster when he beat the, the great major leaguer Rube Waddell in a head-to-head -head matchup. Uh, and he got labeled Rube, and he was Rube from that day on after beating Waddell in that head-to-head -head matchup. And, of course, as we share in MLB The Show, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, it was called a fadeaway, and Rube Foster perfected that pitch, so much so that the great Major League manager, John McGraw, would indeed sneak Rube into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way to the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster was indeed best known as this executive, this tremendous leader. He would organize the Negro Leagues. He would become president of the Negro Leagues. He owned the Chicago American Giants and he managed the Chicago American Giants. And his brilliance as a manager, as a tactician, is second to none. Yeah, no, he, he understood great talent. He was able to convince that talent to come play for him. And he seemingly was able to maximize the talent that he had. He built some, really some dynasties there in the Negro Leagues. And so now his career spans the gamut. And, and then you add in the dimension of what he did to create the Negro Leagues, to give both black and brown players a, a forum, a playground, where they could showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And like I said, this had been attempted prior to Rube, but they had failed. And Rube seemed to have the wherewithal to get it done. Well, it didn't seem he had the wherewithal to get it done. And man, uh, like I said, you will find, be hard-pressed to find anyone who gave the game more than Andrew Root Foster. Yeah, it's funny because you listed several accomplishments and then at the end it's, oh, and he also oh, created the Negro Leagues. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he did all these, you, you listed off enough to get in the Hall of Fame on multiple fronts. And oh, by the way, he created the Negro Leagues as well, which I think is just an amazing career. 
And he creates the Negro Leagues in 1920. And many people, and they operate from 1920 to 1960, as you mentioned earlier. And many observers of Major League Baseball view that time period as largely the golden age of Major League Baseball. You have stars such as Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Ted Williams. How would you compare the on-field product of the Negro Leagues with Major League Baseball at that time? The talent in the Negro Leagues wouldn't take a backseat to any league. You had tremendous athletes. And John, when I take people through the Negro Leagues Museum, that's usually how you hear me describe the players in the Negro Leagues, as being some of the greatest athletes who just happened to play baseball. Because the athletes in the Negro Leagues could have played anything, but baseball was the sport. And, and so they brought a level of athleticism to go with great skill and great knowledge of the game. And, and so the talent was outstanding. And, and I think people sometimes want to try and diminish the talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. The only thing that separated the Negro Leagues and the major leagues, aside from color, was money. The major league owners had more money, so they had their own stadiums. The Negro Leagues didn't really have their own stadiums. You ultimately had two, three teams that built their own stadiums, but by and large, they were renting the ballparks from the major league teams, which is also one of the reasons that it took so long to integrate the game because the major leagues were making money from the Negro Leagues. But when we start to talk about the talent level that was there in the Negro Leagues, no, man, it wouldn't take, it was, as Buck O'Neill would say, it was not inferior because they were black and the major leaguers weren't superior because they were white. Now, this talent was dispersed. You had the greatest athletes, you had the greatest white athletes playing in the major leagues. You had the best black and brown athletes playing in the Negro leagues. And, and so there was lots of talent to go around but the talent in the Negro Leagues was outstanding. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate the guy like John Donaldson never got to pitch against Babe Ruth, you know, the matchups like that. And you said something in MLB The Show that I found really fascinating based off that, that Jackie Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues. And I think a lot of folks, and I'll be honest with you, when I first knew the history of Jackie Robinson, I just figured, yeah, he was probably the best guy. And also he had the intangibles to deal with the abuse on and off the field. And then when you said, no, no, this guy, he was a great player, but he was not the best player. I found that fascinating. Could you tell, who would you rate? And you can give me more than one if you want, but guys that were better than Jackie or the best of the best in the Negro Leagues, who, who would those guys be? Well, the superstars in the Negro Leagues, honestly, John, were too old. Sure. Yeah, they had, by and large, passed their prime. Now, if the doors open sooner, who knows what the record books would have been like. But keep in mind that Jackie Robinson was not Branch Rickey's first choice. His first choice was a ball player named Monty Irvin. And, and Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. Monty Irvin was a far better baseball player than Jackie Robinson. And that's not taking anything away from Jackie Robinson. Sure. Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest athletes in American sports history but it's eye-opening for a lot of my visitors when I share with them that baseball was his weakest sport. Now, he much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player, some say an even better tennis player. So there was absolutely nothing that Jackie Robinson could not do. But Branch Rickey's first choice was Monty Irvin. 
and Monty Irvin had been a star, superstar for the Newark Eagles. And Monty Irvin has just gotten back from World War II. And Monty was suffering from what he would admit to be shell shock. Today, we call it post-traumatic syndrome. But the real reason that Monty Irvin wasn't the first is because of a woman by the name of Effa Manley. Effa Manley owned the Newark Eagles. And to say that Effa Manley couldn't stand Branch Rickey might be an understatement. Now, she didn't care for Branch Rickey at all, and rightfully so, because she saw exactly what Rickey was going to do. Rickey was going to come into the Negro Leagues and essentially raid it of his star talent without any compensation to the owners. And that is exactly what he had tried to do with Monty Irvin. He had snuck and signed Monty Irvin prior to making a move on Jackie Robinson. And Mrs. Manley was prepared to litigate. She was going to take him to court. And I think Ricky thought about this and realized he did not need a public fight with this Black woman or who we believe was a Black woman because Effa Manley's is an interesting character study in her own right because we don't really know what her ethnicity truly was, but she was believed to be biracial. And so he realized he didn't need to fight with this with this black woman over this black ball player when you already know the other owners are going to stand in solidarity to try and block this move anyway. And so he backs off of the great Monty Irvin and turns his sight here to Kansas City to one Jackie Roosevelt Robinson. Jackie had joined the Kansas City Monarchs earlier the year in 1945. And honestly, John, had it not been for World War II, I'm not sure Jackie would have gotten invited to try out for the Monarchs. The Monarchs' roster was filled with great stars who had gotten called in to serve this country during World War II. Buck O'Neill, most recent Hall of Famer here for us, was serving in Subic Bay, Philippines in the Navy. Hank Thompson, who's part of this first iteration of the video game because we wanted to make sure that there were some lesser known players by, by sure. name, not by talent. And, and, and as you're learning through the video game, Hank Thompson is the only baseball player to hold the distinction of integrating two Major League Baseball teams. He integrates the St. Louis Browns and then would integrate the New York Giants. So he's with the Giants before Willie Mays and Monty Irvin get there. And Hank Thompson could do everything. Well, Hank Thompson was serving in the Army, a ball player by the name of Ted Strong. And I often draw the comparison of Ted Strong with a modern day ball player that people have typically heard the name Dave Winfield. OK. Ted Strong was Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield was. Ted Strong was six, seven, weighed about 240, freakish athlete, five tool caliber ball player, played every position except for pitch and catch. He's a six-seven shortstop man, and, and when he wasn't starring for the Kansas City Monarchs, he was a star for the Harlem Globetrotters. Many thought that Ted Strong could have been the first to break the color barrier, but Ted Strong had his own personal demons. Yeah, that prevented him from possibly being the first, but Ted was in the Navy. A Hall of Fame outfielder by the name of Willard Brown, Josh Gibson nicknamed him Home Run Brown. Now, if Josh Gibson gives yeah. you the nickname Home Run Brown, you must have some power. And Willard Brown was a do-it-all outfielder, five-tool guy, again, hit, field, run, throw. He had everything that you needed. 
he too was serving in the army. So if the monarchs have their full roster intact, Jackie Robinson never gets invited to try out and how would history have been altered? So there's no disrespect toward Jackie sure. when we talk about this tremendous talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. Jackie comes here in 1945. He's a teammate of Satchel Paige. And even though we don't know how old Satchel was, there were many who believed that Satchel should have been the first from the Negro Leagues because he was the Negro League's biggest and brightest star. He was the biggest star in a universe filled with big stars. Uh -huh. And Satchel was the brightest. And again, you know, he had that issue of people not knowing how old he was. And so Bill Vec was really the only guy that would have given him an opportunity. And Bill Vec does give Satchel an opportunity a year after Jackie breaks the color barrier. But when we look at Jackie Robinson, we had to look at the guy who was better prepared to deal with everything that he was going to have to deal with. See, Jackie had already been accustomed to playing with and against white athletes. He had done so in college. So this was nothing new to him. So that certainly served him well. And, and as I mentioned, Jackie was a tremendous athlete. So it didn't take him long to catch on to that style of play that was signature to a Negro Leagues, which he took with him into Major League Baseball. And as you mentioned, the other intangibles that really made him much better prepared than so many of the other players from the Negro Leagues who essentially, as Buck O'Neill would say, had been acclimated to segregation. Not Jackie. Yeah. yeah. Not and, and I love that you said that part of the reason in the video game was to highlight guys that were equally talented or greatly talented, but maybe not as well known because there were two guys that really stood out to me in that regard. One was Hilton Smith. Mm -hmm. who he's 70 and 38 with a 2.92 career ERA. He also had a career batting average of 298. And then Martin DeHigo, who his 1938 season, you could make the case, is the greatest season of baseball ever when he had a .9 ERA. I mean, it's crazy to read. 18 and 2 with a .9 ERA. And by the way, he hit 387. Like, it's <laughs> it, it's crazy to me. Like, and, and, and it's also important to help people realize he won the pitching title that year. And he also won the batting title. Right. That, that is the rarest of double-doubles. You know, maybe Shohei Atani might get there one day, but uh, that is the rarest of double-doubles to win the pitching title and to win the batting title in the same season. Yeah. And it, what what is even more amazing, John, no one knows who he is. Thank God for this video game that is introducing these players to a generation of baseball fans who are now falling in love with the Negro Leagues, or otherwise, if it's not for the work that we're doing here at the Negro Leagues Museum, no one would know sure. a ball player the magnitude of Martin DeHigo. He yeah. is enshrined in five different countries' baseball halls of fame. He's yeah. in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown, played all nine positions and played all nine of them well. How could you not know about a ball player, the magnitude of Martin DeHigo, but that's the plight of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've visited five countries, let alone be in the Hall of Fame <laughs> of five countries, Bob. And I do want to get to, you have a great expansion project of the museum. Yeah. I want to get to that in a moment. But first, we've talked a lot about MLB The Show in the video game and how you said this has introduced some Negro League stars to a whole new generation of fans. And 
how just how did that partnership come up? Because when I bought MLB The Show 23, I thought, hey, I'm going to play some baseball. This is going to be fun. And then also I'm like, Negro League, what's this? And I go into it. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. How did this partnership come about? You know, I wish I could take credit for it. And, and maybe 20 years from now, I'll lie and swear it was my idea. Yeah. But it wasn't my idea. Now, the idea had been percolating for quite some time. And we always had people reaching out and saying, you know, just raising the question, when or if the Negro Leagues would ever be part of a video game? And, and those were the diehards who really understand the history of this game. Sure. I wasn't sure that we would ever be able to give it that mainstream kind of voice. Ramon Russell over at San Diego Studios, part of the PlayStation, Sony PlayStation family, is the guy that reached out to me and planted the seed. And even then he was trying to manage my expectations. At this time, it was very much exploratory. We wanted to see if it was possible to include the Negro Leagues in the PlayStation video game, MLB, the show. And the more Ramon and I started to talk and then other team members over there at San Diego Studios and got engaged and involved. And the more stories I told, the more real this became. And we started moving down a path that led us to the March 30th official release of the game. And they came out to Kansas City last August with a full-fledged TV production crew. They turned the cameras on, sat me down and said, tell stories. And that's what we did. And I think the more stories I told, the more engaged and interested they became in this project. And honestly, in the thought process behind this was that this was going to be released in 2024. Okay. And I think they fell in love with the stories and they went to work and they turned this in a really, based on what I understand about the world of video gaming, you don't turn them as quickly as they did this project. But I say that, and I do think it's important to understand, there was not a detail spared in this video game, as you will know. Yeah. You can feel the wool of the uniforms in this game, the stadiums that they created to replicate the old vintage stadiums that the Negro Leagues played in, the way that the fans are dressed at those games. There's not a detail spared. And when I went out to San Diego to kind of do a test run to see some of the videos and everything that they had put into this. It was special, man, because you could feel the love that these young people had in putting and developing this project. And I'm sure they're very proud of all the work that they do. But this one hit differently. And, and you could tell this is a passion project for everybody involved in it. And when you put your heart and soul into something the way that they did with this game, you certainly hope that the general public will receive it in the same manner. Of course, we didn't know. And we've all been blown away at the overwhelmingly positive reaction that MLB the show has gotten with the inclusion of the Negro Leagues to the point where there are others who are saying that every sports game should add this component of history in this manner. And, and so we feel like we've started something really, really special. We're educating people. And when you can educate and entertain, I call it edutainment. Yeah, when you can educate and entertain, you create an experience, people retain this. 
I was just in the museum today as we're recording this and several young people, these are young kids. They recognize my voice from MLB the show. Yep. And, and they all wanted to come over and take pictures and share, you know, how much they are enjoying and learning about the Negro Leagues. And I'm hearing stories of kids in their little leagues naming their pitches like Satchel named his pitches. And man, that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. And so I couldn't be more proud of the partnership that we have with Sony PlayStation on this video game. We have a five-year partnership in place. So we are expecting to see Negro League players over the next five years, eight to 10 each year over the next five years. And so we have an opportunity to do something groundbreaking, or I guess you could say game changing. Uh, and, and we felt like we've done that. And to get that validation from, I mean, thousands and thousands of people who are enjoying this game really touches me and it just makes me feel very proud of what we've done. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the edutainment piece because it's I've played sports video games my whole life. And this is probably the first time I've really sat there and learned something and sat there. And I thought it was just the way the videos played into the game modes itself, I thought was, again, really entertaining. But then yep. I walked away knowing who some of these guys were and not just knowing who they were, but why they were included in the game. And you kind of stole my thunder because my next question was going to be, is there more? And you yep. have a five year partnership, yep. which is very exciting. I'm looking forward to that. And I have to ask you, Bob. Have you played the Negro Leagues mode? <laughs> that was the funnest thing about it. I'm in the video game. And of course, I'm narrating throughout yeah. the video game. And needless to say, my cool level has risen considerably now that I'm in a video game. But the funniest thing about it, John, was young folks trying to teach me how to play the game, man. That was absolutely hilarious. You know, I, I'm still trying to get the hang of all these doggone buttons on the control pad you know, the dexterity that you guys have to be able to understand where these buttons are. I'm throwing to the wrong base and everything else. So it was pretty funny trying to teach old Bob how to play the video game. But I'm looking forward to having a day here at the museum where folks can get out and come here and play the video game on the field of legends where Satchel, who is in the first iteration of the game, Matinda Higo is in the game and do that in this environment. And maybe I'll keep working on my skill level and maybe I can become at least competent about how to play this game. Well, I guess that's the benefit of a five-year partnership, right? You know, by year four or five, you'll be probably pretty good at it. You know, trust me, it took me, I was thrown to the wrong base plenty of times myself. So you are, I, I think uh, Hilton Smith gave up more homers when I pitched with him than he did in his real life. So. Yeah, while he was pitching in the Negro Leagues, that's for sure. Yeah, and you mentioned the being at the Negro Leagues. I know you're the president of the Negro Leagues. And before we let you go, I do one of something that I found really fascinating is that you guys are going to be expanding the Negro Leagues Museum in the coming years. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and what the goals are, and and what's when's it going to be completed as well? Yeah, a little over a month or so, we made the historic announcement about our plans to build a new 30,000 square foot standalone state of the arts Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and to build it adjacent to the Paseo YMCA where Rube Foster established the Negro Leagues in 1920. Of course, we've been rehabbing that old historic landmark with plans to convert it into an education and research center 
in memory of the late great Buck O'Neill, and now to build a new museum, essentially adjacent and attached to the historic landmark where it all began, creating about a 70,000 plus Negro Leagues campus or a campus that will examine both black baseball and social history, creating an international headquarters for us here in Kansas City. I'm excited about it. It is a daunting task. We've got to raise some 25, 30 million dollars for the construction aspect of this project. But I feel as assured as you possibly can be with that kind of project looming on the horizon that we will be successful in the fundraising. We have a lot of friends who certainly believe that this is an important next step in the growth of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as we try to position it for its long-term sustainability and create more interesting, engaging ways, create an immersive experience that combines the best of both worlds, nostalgia and technology to create that immer immersive experience. And so, you know, we gave ourselves a five-year cushion to raise this money. I would love to be able to raise this money over the next two years or so and then break ground and start construction on a new brand new Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's awesome, Bob. And last question I want to ask you, we've talked about the history of the Negro Leagues, some of the great stars, your work with MLB, the show, the museum expansion. If you could encapsulate it, what do you think is the legacy of the Negro Leagues and Negro League Baseball? Wow. And it's, it is one that is, I think, so steep in the American spirit. Because as I share with my visitors, the spirit that drove the Negro Leagues, you won't let me play with you. I'll create my own. Yep. I'll create my own. And, and when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. And so even while America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And that is why this story is so compelling so awe-inspiring. I tell people all the time, what's not to love about the story of the Negro Leagues? People just didn't know the story of the Negro Leagues because you had no way to know the story. And as my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. American history, American historians did us all a tremendous service, disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. And, and so for me, the life lessons that stem from this story of triumph over adversity are just as meaningful today, maybe even more meaningful today than ever before. And, and I think that's what we are learning here. They had no idea they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But as I share with our visitors, the passion, the pride, the perseverance, the determination, the courage that they demonstrated in the face of adversity. I remind our guests that our story is not about the adversity, but rather what they did to overcome the adversity. And that's what drives this story. And I think that's what makes people, when they leave this experience, they leave cheering the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. And it's important that the legacy of the Negro League plays on so that it is there to help remind us not only of the past, 
but also give us hope as we move toward the future. And, and to me, that is what makes this museum so vitally important. It was a pleasure to be joined today by Mr. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum, and dare I say the biggest star of MLB The Show 23, <laughs> at least from what I've played. Mr. Kendrick, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure. John, it's my pleasure, man. Again, thanks so much for having me. Huge thank you to Mr. Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for joining me on this week's episode of Coach Time here on the Believe Network. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.